There was a rubber boat with about 100 people on board and we spent a good three hours in the dark trying to find them, which was my first experience of trying to look for a rubber boat in the darkness and it's impossible. We go out there hoping that we don't need it. The reality is we don't want to be doing this. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to be doing this. This isn't something that NGOs should have to do. This is a state's responsibility. But because of the political situation, we're in a position where we feel like we have to. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. remember that at the end of last summer, UK artist Banksy hit the news when he funded a new search and rescue boat in the Mediterranean. He painted it bright pink with a girl in a life vest holding a heart-shaped safety boy painted on the side. And it was named the Louise Michelle after a French feminist anarchist. We refer to it in this episode as the Louise. The Louise has so far made one rescue mission on which it brought 219 people to safety. Today you will hear the story of what happened on that rescue mission from two of its crew members, Vanessa and Dickon, or V&D as they call each other. V&D met on a previous search and rescue mission, fell in love and have gone on to set up their own organisation, Search and Rescue Relief or SAR Relief. We recorded this conversation at their home in South London before the most recent lockdown, where I also met their puppy Marmite, who has his own cameo later on in this episode. V and D finished each other's sentences as they told me their story and left me totally in awe of what they have been through and achieved together. I'm Vanessa. I am a doctor by trade. I'm Dickon. I work in the film industry as a special effects designer in my sort of day job. We started search and rescue relief officially about 18 months ago. I'm really interested in that story. How did this all begin for you? Well, I mean, I was working in uh, search and rescue in the UK and one of my colleagues on the lifeboat that I was based on in Brighton basically said, I'm heading off to Lesvos to uh, work with refugee rescue for a couple of weeks. And I had absolutely no idea at all about anything, the you know horrendous situation that was going on specifically over there in the Med. So I went out to Lesvos for... A couple of weeks and was educated quite rapidly. While I was out there, I applied for Sea-Watch, which is another large, it's a German NGO working mainly in the Mediterranean, and then ended up going out there quite soon afterwards where we met. 
So you guys actually met through this work? Yeah. (laughs) I also applied to Sea-Watch. I'd been working sort of in refugee scenarios. I worked in Calais and then I ended up in Greece for a couple of years. In the medical space specifically? Yes. I was working as a doctor on Samos, one of the islands, and I had kind of heard about the sea rescue in the Central Med and had applied for Sea-Watch and then got on and then went to Malta where Dee and I met and then we were on the ship for like two weeks because we weren't allowed to, allowed to go out of Malta. So we were like detained in port for bureaucratic reasons mm-hmm. whilst people were sort of dying in the Mediterranean and we were like a full crew ready to go out and we weren't allowed to go out. It was pretty horrendous timing because there was some some big casualties that we were aware of within the SAR zone off the Libyan coast. The SAR zone is the search and rescue zone. Whenever we say SAR in this episode, note that it's short for search and rescue or V&D's own charity, Search and Rescue Relief. And, you know, we were sitting there. Yeah, we were just sat around doing like... Training. Not very much. So you knew that like, you could be out there actually saving lives and... Yeah, yeah and there yeah. was like 20... I don't know how big the crew was, like was, maybe was 20, 20 of us there. captain, multiple doctors, engineer, you know, it like... It was a full we were, crew ready to, you know, ready to go. And why um, could you not be out there? It was a political... The ship at that point was registered with the Dutch authorities and they said that they needed some survey and so we got the survey done and then the port authorities, we applied to leave and they said that we couldn't leave because of some issue. So it was kind of going back and forth. There was no like clear answer, but... It It was pressure from above. It's crazy, isn't it, that it's being deliberately made difficult to save these lives and it just seems like basic humanity. And we've seen lots of stories of this work even being criminalised, which Mm. for me just seems so, so shocking. So let's go back to the story. So you guys met there, were basically like locked down together, I guess, and had like a couple (laughs) couple of weeks together. I guess uh, then I think we both came away from that mission where we didn't go out and we didn't do what we came there to do with that kind of sense of like there must be something else that we can do as well. Came back to sort of relatively full-time jobs in the UK but also wanting to be able to have an impact. It was frustrating. Like The whole thing was incredibly frustrating. Sitting in Malta in the lovely sunshine on a ship doing absolutely nothing when you absolutely knew that there was... Mm. scores of people that were in peril so then we decided to i guess d you've got like a lot of professional search and rescue skills and and links within the uk to be able to get equipment like boats and engines and things so decided to set up a a means of supporting other ngos yeah went down the route of starting sar officially together with the remit of supplying specialist search and rescue equipment, training, financial support to other NGOs, and sort of project management for elements of their SAR operations. What was the kind of first project? I mean, should we talk about the Louise? I guess it's, yeah, the the, the big one is the Louise, right? (laughs) There's a um, captain called Pia, who is an awesome lady. um, She was also, yeah, she was also the captain of 
what would have been our first mission out when we were stuck in Malta. Yes. Okay, so, so we you had, knew, like, her. knew her. We spent quite a lot of time with her, yeah. knew her quite well. Yeah, so she she was approached, well, she got an email where Banksy was like, I want to buy you a boat. I actually wrote down this email in my notes because <laughs> yeah, I thought it was, it was so crazy. good. He said, hello, Pia, I've read about your story in the papers and you sound like a badass. I'm an artist from the UK and I've made some work about the migrant crisis. Obviously, I can't keep this money could you use it to buy a new boat or something? Please let me know. Well done, Banksy. <laughs> like, imagine getting that email. Well, I mean, she was, was like, question marks. this is you a know, joke. Is this real? <laughs> oh, and so we started discussing this potential of this project and if it was real, you know, what mm. involvement could, would we like to or be able to have? Mm. What was born was something that's quite incredible like it wasn't just a boat financed by Banksy it was like a whole collective it was like a completely feminist vegan boat so it was kind of also like a thought experiment and and a way of doing things that is quite different Mm -hmm. and And, massive political statement as well yeah huge like the idea is that actually what's going on in the Mediterranean isn't a humanitarian crisis it's a political crisis it's created because of political will from either side and it's is written like this is terrible and we can't do anything about it and actually we can do something about it so if one artist from london can or from the uk can do more than the governments are actually doing in that time then yeah it just shows that like we can do something about it something can be done right if the will is there absolutely and so yeah. the will the will is definitely there from uh, from this uh, collective of, of peoples so it was a very they, strong group of women that yeah like put this together they bought a ship yeah and Banksy painted it right Banksy, Banksy came bright pink with a fire extinguisher came <laughs> with his fire extinguishers and sprayed it completely bright pink yeah. and we filled it with lots of feminist books <laughs> there was a lot of preparation that went into the boat which is an amazing vessel in really good condition and so a lot of how well the uh, deployment worked was because it was so well prepared we spent a lot of time thinking about what was required from it, from an operational standpoint, from an equipment standpoint, um, maintenance, fueling. You know, there was a lot of logistics involved. And I guess like COVID as well. You know, so that wasn't that wasn't super easy. And I guess one of the differences about this boat is that it's mm-hmm. an ex navy patrol boat much faster than the other sea rescue ships in the mediterranean so what often happens in the libyan search and rescue zone which is like off the coast of libya small dinghies or rubber boats leave libya and they may be sort of in distress and sometimes the sort of so-called libyan coast guard come and pick them up and pull them back to libya which is going against one of the humanitarian principles of non-refoulement and because Libya isn't a place of safety, mm-hmm. it's in civil war. But the the European Union like fund the Libyan Coast Guard and they, they pay them. But the experience that we've had is that often the people that are picked up, they kind of say that they would rather die than go back to Libya. And Which so, is shown, you know, over and over again on on footage that's been taken mm-hmm. from various vessels of people jumping overboard and in certain cases drowning. Because conditions are so bad back there that they don't want to go back there. So I think hell on earth, I've heard it been called many a time over yeah. and over again. Yeah, it's horrendous, um, and the you know the torture is horrendous. So one of the advantages of Louise 
it's really far. So it can outrun the Libyan Coast Guard. With with a 25-knot vessel, you can approach and secure a scene and triage it and make it safe for the people. So mm. get there, approach the casualty vessel, hand out life jackets. So that at that point, no one's going to drown. You can then assess yeah. the, the casualties on board and you can do that much quicker with the Louise once you have a potential target that's been given to you from one of the aeroplanes or you can get there really quick and you can mm. you can make it safe. If the Libyan Coast Guard were going to be there, then we wouldn't go there as well because that could potentially make the situation much more dangerous. Okay. For the casualties. Because if people jump in the water and... By putting ourselves in the same vicinity as a rescue, um, and that's in like quotation marks, in a rescue by the the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, you know, they're going to want to go to the vessel that isn't the Libyan Coast Guard. Yeah, they're going to want to come to you, basically. And, and that potentially mm. could put people in the water. And as soon as people are in the water, mm. the whole situation becomes a very different And there's situation. been times when the Libyan Coast Guard are firing shots and things like that, so it can quickly I'm sure escalate. I've seen footage of that. The crew of the Louise was 10 people, so mm-hmm. quite a small crew. It has sort of minimal ground crew as well. So we kind of all had some very frank discussions before we went out about what we would be doing in different situations, how decisions would be made. And we're kind of aiming for a pretty like flat hierarchy so that we would all make decisions together and that we would agree on them, especially like the really important ones. It was a great crew. The crew was amazing and very experienced and one of the important things about that first mission was that the crew was very capable because we had to learn uh, the ship and we had to learn how we were going to do things and, and everyone had multiple roles yeah because we were quite small so yeah 10 but also my understanding or it was reported that it was an all-female crew right no yeah, yeah so, <laughs> so very much uh not no evidently not <laughs> Um, I think they wanted to make sure that there was like good female representation mm -hmm. because like in this field of work, it's a male dominated scene. You kind of set sail in in secret, right? Because the press wasn't really kind of aware of the mission until the first rescue. So did you guys have to kind of keep that a secret? Not really. It wasn't that we set sail in secret it was just that we weren't publicizing anything you know the the ship was there in its bright pink glory um you know, yeah, for, i was wondering for, about for that. how did you keep this big bright pink yeah, vessel so, yeah like under wraps so okay. it was there was nothing covert about it it was just that we weren't publicizing the fact that this was mm. what we were doing because as soon as you publicize things and you know there's interest there may well be barriers put in your way and mm-hmm. we, we certainly didn't want any barriers putting mm. in the way what was a, a totally legal and you know very positive movement v and d first reached out to me whilst in the middle of their first rescue mission aboard the louise michelle first time that you guys contacted me you'd just picked up about 80 people, 89 or something, I think yeah. you reached. Yeah. And then it ended up being over 200, right? So tell me the story of, of those intense few days. Some of it's a bit, of, bit blurry, I guess, because <laughs> our, our intention with Louise was, was never to have people on board for a large amount of time. Because we didn't have that much space on board. You were quick, but not too big, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. and, and we, we, we didn't secure, carry loads of food. It, you know, we had 
plenty of emergency rations, but try eating those for days on end. It's mm. not particularly nice. So, you know, we, we were never intending to be able to take large numbers of people on board. Okay, so that was always the purpose, that you would go secure a scene, make sure that everybody was relatively okay, potentially take a few people on board and then transfer them onto a bigger ship. It, it was a potential. We were kind of prepared for lots of situations. Yeah, and that was, one, that of was one of the scenarios that could happen. Another scenario was that we were in a position to take all these people on board and go and, you know, go to port, go and demand is- a safe port. So just to reiterate that, the Louise Michelle has the capacity to safely carry just 120 people, including its 10 crew members. We came across a rubber boat. As you say, there were 89 people on board. There was sort of quite a few heavily pregnant women and babies. We took the people on board. Often these people have fuel burns. So where the salt water mixes with fuel, it creates like a chemical burn. The conditions within the boat... Um, I mean, this is a, it's really hard to imagine what this looks like if you haven't actually seen it. But this is a 14 metre long, big grey rubber floppy boat might have sheets of plywood on the floor and have like one or sometimes two tiny little engines on the back. As the waves move, these boats move with the waves. You know, they're that big and they're that floppy and they've, you know, often have in excess of a hundred people on board, and uh, yeah, this mm. one was this one was eighty seven, and was not in amazing eighty nine. Okay, sorry, yeah, <laughs> eighty nine, uh, and yeah, I mean, not you wouldn't really want to go anywhere in it. Yeah, so they'd been at sea for not hugely long. They were in reasonable condition, like mm-hmm. at least a day. Mm-hmm. We were pulling people off the rubber boat, so. So I was doing the transfers from the rubber boat to the Louise. And, um, you know, some, some of the people would just get off and just instantly be incredibly seasick, having gone from one very seasick inducing movement to another. And be covered in fuel and salt water burns. And so it took, it took quite a long while for the sort of situation to become more comfortable for everyone. We did this rescue then we made everything, you know, pretty shipshape. You know, we reloaded the small uh, Esme back on board. We have a five-meter small boat Esme that is launched off the side of the Louise, and it's named Esme after this amazing woman who works within Banksy's office. So she was facilitating Ooh. all of our everything, and so we, yeah. We named mm. the small rescue boat after her. Nice. Yeah. People could falling asleep, you know, on the deck, on life jackets as pillows, and we carried hundreds of blankets. We had a, you know, there's a sort of toilet and shower at the at the stern, which people were using to rinse off. And we put a big tent up on the aft deck with all the guests were helped us to do everything like that. We made loads of tea. I think it's really beautiful that you call them guests as well. I just want to highlight that because I think that that's really important. Semantics is really important. I think makes I think people feel welcome. Yeah, well, I mean they they were they were very much welcome. Mm-hmm. And you also, know, we're not there to judge. It's not our place to, you know, ask any sort of questions or any information. It's like, you know, at that point of time, they needed rescuing from the ocean, and that's what we did. I mean, do you like made a hundred 
bread rolls for these people <laughs> and I was like that's a crazy idea in a in a galley like in a tiny ship galley with like not that much equipment and I was like why are you doing that and then you turn up with like a hundred buns and I was like in a bucket wow. like, a very clean well. bucket <laughs> Well, I mean, they weren't amazing. Everyone loved it. Everyone loved it. The most popular man on the ship. We were handing out tea from the um, porthole in the galley, and it was great, you know. And and the kids were, the kids were great. The kids were amazing. They, you know, they were helping us hand out tea. They were like working as hard as we were. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they were like, let's hand out biscuits and tea. (laughs) And I'd I'd taken with me one of these big inflatable sofas you know the ones that have a big hole in the front and you gather air into it and wrap it yeah. up so it's like Those a dry people bag that look crazy in the park when they're like yeah, yeah. running around trying to yeah. fill them with air yeah, yeah i know um, the type. so <laughs> I, I i pulled that out of my uh, my locker and, and inflated it and gave it to the kids and they spent you know hours and hours bouncing around on this thing and on the deck and the decks were full at this point, the decks was pretty full. There was mm. room to move around, but and sharpies were, were coming out, and they were just drawing the over the decks and on everything, and you know, on us, and you know, giving <laughs> us extending my tattoos, and it was amazing. They were yeah. they were wonderful, and generally the mood was pretty positive. Yeah, I mean, for the for a large extent, I mean, one of the big memories that stick out for me was I was chatting to a fourteen year old girl who's obviously quite traumatized and quite depressed she's just really like just like hopeless about the future and having experienced such an such a negative world towards her like she, she was saying things like i hate the color of my skin and and hearing that from a 14 year old girl and and knowing what the world is like was quite but you have to recognize that these people have been on a journey for god knows how long like it's not just libya it's 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 the place where they've come from and then they've had to travel so they're very traumatized and yeah they 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 were happy to be with us and they were lovely but and we were all pretty exhausted as well because we were trying to care for 89 guests on board having just done i mean the the process of the rescue was reasonably substantial and there's a lot to do and then there's a lot to secure you know there's a huge number of people for Mm. for medical triage it's volume of people trying to give a positive experience to whilst actually being in a pretty shitty situation Mm -hmm. by middle of the following day it became a much more comfortable environment where people could actually start thinking about their actual needs rather than just survival so then what happened we we kind of started to head towards a safe port with all of those people on board yeah, yeah with 89 this is the day after the so, day after so yeah. we'd and then we basically heard a mayday call which is like a distress call from one of the surveillance airplanes called moonbird so they had basically seen another rubber boat roughly 100 people who looked like they were in a really bad way basically engines not working and no no life-saving equipment on board at all and we were kind of like well we have to go distress call would go out to basically everyone in the area so including the italian and the maltese authorities because this boat was in maltese search and rescue waters so, or search and rescue zone. Yeah, so every piece of water is 
separated out into a responsibility for for search and rescue. So these magic lines that separate borders of search and rescue zones mm. um, in in all seas. So this boat boat was in the Maltese was in the Maltese area yeah, SAR zone. We turned up on like seven pm roughly. Yeah, um, it was beginning of a very long night. We mm. made really good speed to to mm. the casualty vessel and then started you know the triage having handed out life jackets and they were in a bad way and just to go back to from getting that call to making your way to the casualty boat how do you feel at that point you just have to reset your mind like obviously we'd been with these with these people for like 24 hours or something we were, we're a little bit tired but you kind of have to be like right get my head back into the rescue mindset mm-hmm. and you do have to like just go just like calm yourself yeah. be prepared for essentially anything any kind of situation and one of the things we had to do was clear the decks a bit because we were keeping the women and children in the mess which was also a hospital so we kind of had to make sure that we had access to the deck space but also to like medical equipment if we were to mm-hmm. need it yeah. Yeah, I mean, having cleared the decks a little bit, I went out with a couple of the other rib crew and we took the first big bag of life jackets with us. Started handing out life jackets, did a bit of a medical triage. And yeah, like Vanessa says, they they were not in a great way. They'd been at sea for three days, Mm. no engines. They They had a body on board. They had lost three other people from... Uh, you know the people they set out with so there had been three other fatalities yeah it was there was like two babies under a year lots of women and children who were all in the middle of the boat because of safety but they also had like lots of fuel burns so sitting up on the sponsons on the inflatable bits of the rubber boat you're you're much more open to the environment but that also means that you're away from this horrible mixture of of fuel and, and seawater and mm. um, you know vomit and everything else that you can imagine that's sort of gathering in the in the bottom of the boat we were then faced with a, a bit of a difficult decision because you know we're in european search and rescue waters so really malta malta was you know a couple of hours away they should have come and rescued them these people themselves and we also knew that we had limits on the amount of people that we could take on board the louise michelle safely and still be able to maneuver so we were emailing calling absolutely whoever we could like the bridge team were doing as much as they could to try and alert the authorities that this was a situation that they needed to attend and be involved in at the same time we were we were out in the uh, small boat still sort of you know maintaining the you know the scene making sure it stayed safe especially as darkness Mm. sort of rolling in Mm. everyone was calm everyone was listening uh, to you know what we were asking them to do and sort of staying seated you know sitting down and just making sure that everyone was you know we were handing out water and we we had to make the decision that we we had to bring people on board specifically the the most vulnerable and especially these you know babies and and children and and like one of the babies wasn't very well and had to have some like fluid resuscitation and so you know it's 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 very difficult when people are on a rubber boat to like 
triage them or treat any medical problems they have in the dark when mm. the boat's like rolling around. Yeah, I mean, all, almost impossible. So we started, we bought off the immediate casu- medical casualties to the Louise. And then we returned with a life raft. So we disembarked 27 people, perhaps, into this life raft, just to give a little bit more space on the deck. The people in the life raft were the least of the vulnerable. They were the people that were strongest and the least in need of any sort of immediate attention. They got plenty of immediate attention, loads of water, food. They mm. were deemed that the most appropriate not to be on board because we had to be really careful about the stability of the Louise. We had to make sure that this situation was as safe and secure as possible. Mm-hmm. By that point, it was... 3, 4 a.m., the deck was like, you couldn't move, couldn't walk anywhere because it was like literally people everywhere. We like packed people off to bed. We were just sat. The ship was stationary. Manoeuvring the vessel with two life rafts attached and the casualty uh, dinghy. Uh, so we put the, uh, the body in the body bag and that stayed in the rubber boat. Uh, which we attached to our stern, so the back of the ship. So really, we weren't in a position to be manoeuvring at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the scene was secure and safe. The people requiring medical attention were getting that medical attention, but we weren't in a position to make way. Yeah. Um, which And that's what we kind of basically told the authorities. Like, now we're in a position where we can't move. So you're at this point putting out urgent calls to the authorities to say, we can't move, we've got too many people on board yeah. for us to be able to. Yeah. So Further to the to the distress call that had already been put out mm-hmm. for this boat and all the calls that we've been trying to yeah. make for um, we, hours. We were also talking to Sea-Watch 4 as well, who were making way towards uh, our position, aware of you know the situation that was, was now going on. So just to go over the situation that V&D had found themselves in, they had now rescued over 200 people, bringing them to almost double their capacity, leaving them unable to move. They were putting out urgent calls to other NGOs like Sea-Watch and the Italian and Maltese authorities, who took almost 24 hours to respond. It was quite heavily documented that you guys didn't get the support that you needed from the authorities, basically, in no. that immediate response, right? Yeah. No, and then the next day at midday, the Italian Coast Guard, like a, a vessel, came up, which we had we, no prior knowledge about. No. So suddenly we were like, oh, the Italian Coast Guard it's is a blip here. blip on the radar coming towards us very quickly, but no radio communication and no response to our communication towards them either. And they basically said, right, we're going to take the people that are, that are in the life raft off your hands. And as, as like the doctor on board, I was like, well, actually, I've got several heavily pregnant women, like nine months who I, and, and young children and babies who I've had to resuscitate overnight. So I want you to take, take them. the most vulnerable, not our least vulnerable men who we've put in the life rafts. And, and there was a greater number of them than there were people in the life raft. And so eventually they agreed to take them. And then they proceeded to do a very dangerous kind of maneuver whereby they came alongside our boat. And the way that they. It was, it was pretty transferred horrendous. These women, like pregnant women and children, sort of was just very unprofessional and not very safe. It was probably the most dangerous thing that we did the whole mission. Oh, without a doubt. Like, it was the most dangerous of any marine operation that I've ever 
I've ever seen. Yeah. And this is the Italian Coast Guard. This is the Italian Coast yeah. Guard, yeah. And then to make matters worse, they reached like a certain number of people and then they were like, right, that's it. We're not taking any more. So I was like, well, there are six more women here, but you can see them. Will you take them? And they were like, no, that's it. We've reached our quota. It was very much that. It 30 was or 40 people, I can't actually remember. 37 maybe. I, yeah. You know, it was, it was cold, hard numbers, numbers basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they were like, right, that's it. Off we go. No humanity. Yeah, I just. it was absolutely incredible. Their lack of seamanship seemed to really just not, care at all which was quite shocking you understand that people have political views that don't necessarily align with our political views but there's a level of humanity that you think is standard right you've got a baby or you know pregnant woman that that needs support and there's none i mean you're you're there literally filling a quota and it's, it's just appalling. Yeah. I, I was astounded. One of the women who was on, uh, on the Louise, who was heavily pregnant, she then gave birth like two days later wow. in a helicopter going for, said, to mainland Italy. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was quite thankful that that <laughs> didn't happen under my watch on the Louise, but <laughs> we could have had a Louise Michelle baby. Yes. <laughs> it would have been quite amazing. Mm. I might at this point, Dickon took their puppy Marmite outside to the toilet, so I carried on chatting to Vanessa alone. I think it is one of those things where, like, I've read so much about this and, like, been involved in different refugee situations. Like, I feel like I knew what, like, how I would feel when seeing that rubber boat, but it, it's always when you're there and you see it, it's like, oh my God, what the hell? What the hell is that? Like, how are people on that boat and how are they... Like, why would you ever do that? It's, it is one of those things that takes your breath away. Seeing it in real life is different to, to reading about it or seeing pictures. And how do you feel in hindsight, coming back to your normal life, uh, having had that experience? What does that feel like? So I think it took us quite a bit of time to adjust. We had to quarantine, which was actually probably quite a good thing because, first of all, we both slept for, like, a good week <laughs> because... You know, I think you just get exhausted. But yeah, it, I, I mean, I've I've come back into real life several times after being away. And I think it's always really difficult. You go away, you have all these realizations and you experience new things and you see such hardship and trauma. And then you expect that maybe something has changed when you come back and then it, it hasn't and it doesn't. And then you can get really into a dark hole of the world is a terrible place. I think that's one of the good things about the charity search, res Rescue Relief. It's a way of feeling that we're continuing that and we're still doing something to help, even though you're not physically there, physically helping people. Yeah, I guess the best way that I've found to combat those emotions is to turn them into positive action, I guess, yeah. and to channel them into something that's actually useful. It's tough. It is tough to come yeah. home to life that is the same as before you left, but you've changed. You've got new experiences. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, at the moment, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. 
from news in the channel about you know people dying there and you think how does that happen on our doorsteps let alone elsewhere it, yeah it's difficult oh my it's back <laughs> oh <laughs> oh my god he's so gorgeous yeah he's cute let's go back to the story so basically the italian coast guard came and took some not all of the most vulnerable and then what happened with the rest of the people on board sea watch arrived shortly after actually um and And then we did a very safe very it was so smooth smooth transfer like the way it should be done juxtaposed with how it was with the italians yeah and so Um, they took on board everyone remaining on board or in the life rafts which took hours and hours and hours but yeah, it was sort of smooth and, and safe. Mm. And and then we ended up spending a lot of time cleaning. So one of the <laughs> one of the things that we just hadn't factored in was these emergency rations, they're very sugary, also very oily. They're like uh, compacted biscuits, very highly calorific. There were like biscuit crumbs everywhere. So then we were like, why is the deck so slippy? And literally <laughs> oh, we were like sliding around. <laughs> at this point there was yeah. like loads of swell. So we were like trying to clean up and sliding yeah. around this deck. So and we were I think we we're a bit like delirious from tiredness. <laughs> what so is going on? We just found it hilarious. And we had, you know, hundreds of, of cups, you know, been we handing out tea in. And- um, but also whilst all of this is going on, I should probably add this because this is quite important uh, we were masked at all times we had like fp3 like masks on and we were wearing gloves and we were constantly using alcohol gel and we had all these alcohol gel stations set up all around the the uh, vessel for the for the guests to use and so it, it wasn't that same close experience that you would otherwise have you know being able to talk to someone you're talking through a mask, often with sunglasses on as well. You're really mm-hmm. trying to, you know, remove the sunglasses so there was some level of, you know, real human contact there. And that was really tough as well, especially when we were actually doing the rescues, having, you know, all the PPE going on as well. Mm-hmm. And, and weirdly, COVID felt like, you know, sort the of least very... Of our the, yeah, the smallest of... You know, <laughs> we were still doing everything laid out in our operational procedures, like COVID control. But yeah, it was, it was very surreal one of the barriers is like, well, COVID, you can't do a COVID-friendly rescue or operation. But I think it's really important to get some perspective as well that actually like boats are still going across the Mediterranean compared to dying, COVID isn't as bad. So therefore, there, sh- there still should be rescues yeah. on yeah. That's a wild thing to even consider. Like, oh, you yeah. can't do a covid yeah, It's fantastical, rescue, isn't it? It's, yeah. Just, yeah. it's just very yeah. strange. Yeah. Gradually, we started cleaning the ship over the next couple of days and making sure everything was fully, you know, disinfected. All surfaces were always wiped down every few hours anyway that people were touching. Some of our crew went over to the Sea Watch because they had, at that point, 300, 400 people. Yeah, Sea Watch had done their own rescues as well rather than the the transshipments from us Mm. so they were were really stretched you know they had they were had a lot of people on board yeah Um, and so we kind of accompanied them up to the border of 
Sicily, they eventually got a safe port in Sicily, in Palermo, and then all of the guests were transferred onto a quarantine ferry where they ended up spending like a month, I think. 30, I think it was 32 days, I think. It was a long, a long quarantine time. Wow. Um, Before they could then disembark finally to dry land. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you stayed in contact with anybody that was on board the ship? We gave out, there's a sort of communal email address which we gave out to people and we have had a few few contacts from that which is really nice actually and I think we're trying to now sort of work out how we can support people further. Mm-hmm. Do you have much idea of where anybody has ended up whether they're still in Italy or? So the people that I've spoken to, so there's two guys that I've spoken to who are both in Italy um, north, northern Italy at the moment. Plans TBC, really. I guess, like, you know, one of the important points is there's lots of faults um, with how Italy has handled it, but they've also they've also been left to handle mm-hmm. it by the like by Europe. Yeah. yeah. So, like, Greece and Italy have had huge numbers of people arriving at their shores, and and that's difficult. You know, some to... of the communities are really supporting. Though mm-hmm. there's mayors within Italy that are fully supportive. Mm. which is like amazing. And I think people's patience gets tried and that's also understandable. Mm. And Italy has had difficult financial issues and there's been a pretty bad COVID pandemic there. So so what does the future look like for Louise Michelle? Has she done another rescue mission since then? So at the moment she is in a shipyard. The hope definitely is that she'll be back out uh, some point in the not too distant future but we don't know exactly when and you know there's a lot of politics around Mm -hmm. uh, this situation and what about personally do you feel like you want to be back out at sea at the moment or do you feel like you need a long time to kind of recover from something like that how are you feeling it does take it out of you so that's one aspect to consider i mean i i really enjoyed the mission so many positive aspects I definitely would like to go out again in the future. Uh, For me, yeah, I certainly am intending to do other missions at some point. Maybe we could take Marmite. Yeah. (laughs) The search and rescue party. Yes, I think that would be, he would be a very good energy to have on board. (laughs) My fingers right now. (laughs) Oh no, he's found a tote bag. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the hope obviously is that we, we end up not having... The need for the it. need for mm-hmm. it yeah. for us. I don't, for one moment, think that the numbers of people leaving Libya will will stop. I mean, it's just not that's not going to happen. Like there needs to be I massive think, reform mm-hmm. in the political situation, but it's not that easy. There is no simple, instant answer to to this yeah. situation. And I think as long as people are leaving and there's no one else picking them up, there will be members of the civil fleet out there mm-hmm. to pick people up. And in light of the deaths that we've seen in, in the English Channel, is that an area that you see yourselves working in the future? Uh, it's horrendous. The The situation's very different in the Channel because both borders have very well established, established viable search and rescue assets. So there's, there's a lot of SAR vessels out there. Putting something in from the civil fleet would really just cause confusion. Mm-hmm. You know, these are very well organised, very well equipped 
communicating with each other very well. Absolutely horrendous that this is happening. Mm. I think what we're very clear about is we want to fill fill gaps. It's horrific that there are people in the channel that have died, but we have to acknowledge that there are very structured organisations that should be doing their job, Coast Guards, French and um, and British, and other organisations. You know, there's a, a plethora of organisations that uh, and boats that can rescue these people. And actually what we need to see in the channel are safe and legal routes for people to cross so that they're not forced to take these dangerous options. And there is a reason why people are taking these dangerous options is because you cannot get over here via a legal route and actually I think putting a boat in the water isn't solving that problem and really I think it points to what we're doing in the Mediterranean isn't solving any problems but we're trying to stop people dying the gap isn't there in the channel you know it's not required the assets within the channel the boats in the channel and the organizations within the channel are working in such a structured way with communication and support you know they do their job very very well you don't have that in the in the central Mediterranean, which is why the civil fleet is there. And I think what would be a bad outcome is if organisations started to put boats in the channel and then the states said, well, actually, now that means we're resolved of our duty and we don't need to do that. So they stop. And that would be a bad. That was a really good point. You just summarised very well there that, yeah, the gap is not in the search and rescue in the channel. It's in the absence of a safe and legal route for people to get across in a safe and legal way. I've got basically got one last question. How do you think that it's impacted your relationship, the fact that you guys have been (laughs) in these intense... Out of this, like, experiences that nobody or very few people experience together as a couple, right? I bet that that's fast-tracked your relationship in some ways. Forming the charity, we've worked really well together because we do tend to work pretty well together. We've got different skills in different areas and that that comes through. On the vessels, like, if we're... On Louise, for instance, it was a very different situation to anything normal. You know, we both had very intense roles throughout the whole of the deployment. We were there to support each other if we needed to support, but also all the rest of the crew was there to support, and we were supporting other members of the crew. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was a very unique situation, and we managed to do it, and we came out stronger. And I think we were both a good support for each other. There were there were really challenging times as well, and and it took time for both of us to to come back to real life and just to like decompress from it all. I think it's really beautiful that you could do that together, though. I mean, there were question marks. Like, <laughs> when we, I think we both did it because we wanted to do it, not mm-hmm. because of the other person. Oh yeah, it yeah. comes through that you both played your own roles, and it's something that you both actually totally separately were yeah. passionate about and involved yeah. in. Yeah, and I just think that you guys have this beautiful story setting up the charity the mission and also your relationship through that it's really really beautiful to hear and i'm very very grateful that you've shared it with me today i think we were like oh what will challenge us after being in lockdown together <laughs> yeah. let's go on a ship together I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same cabin, bunk beds. <laughs> you've taken it to another level we're here complaining about being locked down in london and yeah actually when we were out and everything was kicking off and it was in the news and it was a bit crazy and we were messaging people and we messaged you, Jazz, and your words of support and encouragement were actually really lovely to hear and kind of made us feel that 
people back in the real world were also involved and that you guys were out there in the forefront that you were being kind of held and supported by this global community right i I was sitting um on the bridge in essentially the captain's chair with decks full of people like absolutely rammed uh, we have satellite internet on board so you know messaging you from from that sort of vaguely <laughs> telling you what was going on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember I remember you telling me oh Vanessa's sleeping right now and then I think yeah, it's been a tough night yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you're like right I've got to go and make lunch for everyone that was probably all the rolls in the bucket yeah, <laughs> yeah. before we finished Dickon shared one last memory which has really stuck with me yeah. Well, we did have some amazing moments on there. Like there was one bit, we were approaching a third casualty vessel. Mm. As we were approaching it, it was mirror calm. You know, it was absolutely mirror. And we were going along in Esme at, at full speed. And there was a pod of dolphins circling the casualty vessel. And then they came over and they were jumping our wake. Like more dolphins than I've ever seen before. They were playing underneath and they were kept circling the casualty vessel. And they stuck around for, for quite a long while. And, you know, I really... I genuinely think that they knew that there was something going on because they were there on scene long before we were. You know, they were just there with this rubber boat full of people just circling. I think that's quite incredible. It's beautiful. It gives me goosebumps. I'm sure of it. They could feel that energy from you or from the people on the boat that needed you. It's just there's something there was something quite primal about it. It's like it was quite yeah like wow. I asked V and D if there were any last thoughts they wanted to share before we finished. It's really important to recognise how many people were involved in you know we we're a small part of it. Banks's team were involved. Obviously, all the guys when I say guys, you know I don't actually mean guys, yeah, but don't all, worry. all the all the guys and girls. <laughs> Wait, let's just scratch that. <laughs> all um, the people. All the people, yeah. So many people were involved in it. Lots of individuals doing individual actions which come together to create something. There's this amazing shore crew that were prepping the vessel as well. Hannah, she spent months on board this ship painting, you know, painting it, sorting the decks out, doing maintenance, fitting things. Lena, who's doing this incredible work on shore, Paula, who was running logistics, you know, there's just all these people involved as well as what we've already talked about. So This whole network, and that's what it takes, I guess, yeah. to make something like this happen. And the people online that are supporting what you're doing and mm. sharing the stories, even by clicking a share or a donate button online, like everyone yeah. has something that they can do in this yeah. space, yeah. right? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, as I say, I'm so grateful to you for sharing the story. It's a really, really beautiful one and also for the work that you do. It's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you're interested in finding out more about Vanessa and Dickens work, go and give them a follow at SAR underscore relief on Instagram. Other incredible search and rescue organisations to follow are Sea-Watch at Sea-Watch Crew, Proactiva Open Arms and SOS Mediterranean. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or to donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite 
as one worldwide tribe. Shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.